Good evening, this is Peter Hammond in the studio for Salt and Light on Radio Tigerberg. We have been broadcasting solidly for 25 years every week on Radio Tigerberg for Salt and Light. With me in the studio today, we have Jonathan Waters. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. Jonathan's from Zimbabwe, resident in Harare, and uh, he has done a magnificent study on Kariba, the legacy of a vision, and this year is the 60th anniversary of the construction of Kariba Dam, which is phenomenal. It's the largest reservoir, man-made reservoir of water on earth. And I remember the incredible optimism that was being generated at the time I saw some publications back in the 60s as a youngster that were talking about how Kariba showed the way of the future, clean, renewable energy, and that the water potential of just the Congo River alone provided enough hydroelectric potential to electrify everything in all of Africa. And what a pity that got derailed because we are in energy crisis these days and we need renewable energy, don't we? Absolutely, absolutely. And what um, Kariba, what they showed in 1955 when Huggins pushed forward with the deci- with the decision to proceed was that Kariba would save a million tons of coal a year, thereby for the thermal for thermal generation, thereby decongesting the railway line. A million tons of, of coal, coal every year, year saved mm. by this Kariba project. What a phenomenal mm. vision, and what a great saving mm. for. Our environment. It shows you like just how green they were back then without even realizing the term. And that's why I called the book Legacy of a Vision, because we're still living with that that legacy or that great vision by um, Godfrey Huggins in 1955. And it was a he manipulated the outcome to to get the dam built. But even today, Kariba still generates power 2.5 cents per kilowatt hour. And it um, was sold um, to consumers generally um, when it's when it's at a market related price of nine and a half cents so it's still and they say coal-fired um, generation at Wangi uh, costs about 15 cents per kilowatt hour so it's still producing all of this um, cheap green energy that is staggering and this is long before Kabora uh, Basa this is long before Aswan Dam I mean these chaps are real pioneers weren't they they were really way ahead of their time absolutely and you know you we've heard from time to time uh, about the low water levels in the dam it's still as i said the world's biggest man-made dam by volume not by surface area covered that's akasombo in ghana which impressed the italians who built kariba go on and build later but when you hear that Kariba is empty, it means it's still it's empty for power generation. When it's full, it has 181 cubic kilometers of water. And when it's empty for power generation, it has 115 cubic kilometers of water. So on average, there's, uh, there's so basically the live storage, which is used for power generation is 65 cubic kilometers. On an average year, Kariba receives about 55 cubic kilometers of water. So the wettest year ever was 1978, 77-78, uh, when the dam received an inflow of 90 cubic kilometers of water. Now, there have been some low rainfall years, and what angered the residents in both Zimbabwe and Zambia recently was Sky News um, carrying on about how uh, Victoria Falls had dried up. And and what what we've actually gone on to show is that 
the driest years actually have been in the 1990s. Between 1981 and 2000, they didn't spill Kariba. And since then, they've spilt it. Uh, the last time they spilt it was in 2013. Chances are you ever seen Kariba being spilled again. If you ever saw it in your youth, you know, was you were lucky because the chances of it ever being spilled again are quite low. Since 2009, additional generation was added on the North Bank in Zambia first between 2009 and 2014, and then on the southern side. Uh, in Zimbabwe between 2014 and 2018. The Zambians had 360 megawatts of power added and the Zimbabweans had 300 megawatts of power added. Our um, 60 megawatts less cost us $100 million more. We're not really sure about that calculation. Mm. Well, I think there's a, a lot of journalism that's irresponsible and uh, doesn't take the wide-angle picture. Bear in mind the seasonal nature of rainfall I've been to Victoria Falls many a time when it's overflowing, and I've been there when it's so-called Victoria Trickles. But that's seasonal. Mm, that's and, seasonal. Uh, and, of course, you can get pictures of it in pretty much mm. flood, and you can, depending what year you go, or mm. where you can see the walls more than you can see the water. Mm. But, uh, again, uh, it doesn't matter that much because Kariba's got this phenomenal uh, volume, and... When people are thinking of, you know, the, it's it's uh, empty, which of course mm. it never has been. That's that's journalistic mm. um, license mm. and and it's ex exploitative sensationalism because it's just the top part mm. that takes in the water uh, for the, the the highest Point section the that's actually going into the generators mm. for the hydroelectric yeah. plant, right? And you know, the spillway gates are actually even below that. The from full to empty, as I said to you, is um, sixty-five cubic kilometers of water, and that's only thirteen meters. On yes. the wall, okay. So considering so, how deep so, Kariba yeah. is, that's so, amazing. The, the wall is 128 meters high, okay. And in the first year um, after damming, it went to 60 meters on the wall. Now, as I say, when it's full, it's at 488.5 meters above sea level, and when it's empty for power generation, it's 475.5 sure. meters. So it's only 13 meter swing. Right. Now. You've just done this phenomenal book. What a great hardcover. Hundreds of pictures. I don't know if you've got how many pictures are in 800. there. Hmm? 800. 800 pictures. In it. Mm. And uh, just phenomenal, uh, outstanding. G take us through some of the history of this. Uh, the first person to actually give us the name Kariba and introduce us to the concept was? Was David Livingston. And it's uh, Providence today that uh, it was 160 years ago on October the 19th. 1860 that Livingston arrived at the gorge and found uh, 30 hippopotami um, swimming around. Um, he was traveling with his brother Charlie and they went through the gorge the next day on the, eight, on the 20th of October. Um, you could call them the first whitewater rafters in Africa because they had quite a torrid time going through there. It wasn't much of a tourist attraction right then. <laughs> no. right. And then we had a lot of early explorers and um, like Salu comes through. Uh, That's a famous Frederick, Frederick Salu, Salu who yeah. was part of the Pioneer Column, one of the greatest hunters of his he's, time. He's the they named the Salu Scouts after him even. Yes, and he's he led the he was the guy who guided the Pioneer Column northwards. Which um, they arrived, you know, in Fort Salisbury on the twelfth uh, of September, eighteen ninety. So that's one hundred and thirty years, years ago. ago. Um, so yeah, so basically, colonial administration comes in in the eighteen nineties and then into the early part of the twentieth century. A few people go down and look at the irrigation potential, but it's in the nineteen forties during the war that a guy called J. L. S. Jeffries, who's an Irishman who had. Um, 
uh, undertaken surveys for the Sonoya to Kefiwi line as well as the Matetsi to Vintok line. Um, he was a he actually played for Western Province um, cricket, at, no, rugby, and um, he had worked for the railways. But this this Irishman was sixty nine years old, and when he was engaged by the Electricity Supply Commission to carry out a survey of the dam between 1941 and 1945. And he really is the father of the scheme. But it is Huggins who manages to mobilize the money. That's the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister of the Federation, who ends up being the longest Prime Minister in the history of the British Empire when he retires in November 1956, who is who's the person, and he actually lays the first skip of con- concrete on the 6th of November 1956. Because he had to authorise a phenomenal mm. amount of money. Just, it might have saved money for the last 60 years, but it cost a lot initially mm. to do. What did Kariba cost to build? It was it was budgeted at £80 million, and it actually came in £2, two million pounds under budget. Um, and that was also them having uh, an extra extra money was spent on reinforcing the South Bank, uh, another one point eight million pounds, and they still came two million pounds under budget. What's just extraordinary about this, especially for those who've seen the film on the construction of of uh, Kariba, was they didn't have things all their own way. This was a Zambezi River to dam that up, and they were hit with serious floods and uh, destruction, weren't they? In the initial building projects. Mm. That's the thing that sticks in everybody's mind. Um, there were two major flooding incidents that took place. The first one was in um, uh, February of uh, 1957, um, when the, uh, sorry, March 1957, when the North Bank uh, coffer dam was, was overtopped. And then the following year, when they thought things couldn't get any worse, and they had actually made provision with a higher coffer dam um, in the main part of the river. Uh, what actually happens is people think that the river overtops it, but the coffer dam develops a hole about a week beforehand. But later on, the river comes down and flood. 4th of March, 1958 is when it's when it's, a, it's absolute peak. And if you go above the falls on the Zambian side, there's still a marker there um, for the, the the all-time record of where the Zambian I mean, that, that was so catastrophic. You, you would have thought there's no way they're going to make the deadlines. How, how could they get it done? Time? How did they achieve that's this? What, they, they achieved it by working at night um, a lot of the time. Um, just to put it in perspective, that, that the, the, those six floodgates at Kariba, if they were all open, let out 9,600 meters, uh, meters, cubic meters per second. And that flood in 1958, it was 16,000. Um, the 1957 floods resulted in modifications, which included increasing the number of gates from four to six. Mm. Um, but they sped up. They sped up their work in the year, in the months thereafter. And in fact, in 1958, that's when they lay almost 60 percent of the of the concrete. Mm. Impressit also ended up really gunning for targets because that enabled them to um, get these bonus payments, which made this little Italian company into a global player. Uh, well, they Kariba, certainly earned it. What, yeah, absolutely. And to do it under budget. And if you and if you, as I say, let's if you look at the timeline here again, peak floods March the fourth, nineteen fifty-eight. Zambezi dammed December the second, nineteen fifty-eight. So they get to the point of of stopping the Zambezi River a mere eight months later. It's remarkable. Mm. Um, and you know, like you have these periods in in history where you have these remarkable people together, and I believe Kariba was one of those one of those times. The Italians, Logiani, Baldessarini, Bergamasco, 
um, as well as the uh, the English teams, including Dr. Henry Olifier, who was the um, engineer. Uh, now you give the stories engineer. of these people. All the of the, it's, also. it's very much a social story in this book, uh, social history of, of people. There's 110 people in the book because um, Karib is very much a people's, people's well, story. It, well, saying that, uh, as a youngster, I remember watching one of the most meaningful, informative films uh, to me was Operation Noah. Mm. It's also an animal film uh, story, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Now, that captures the imagination of, 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 of everybody because... And I, and I tell this in the book too, because up until 1958, the game department was still slaughtering animals um, to as a way of, of trying to eradicate Tetsi. And, um, and between 1931 and 1958, they killed something like 600,000 game animals, including 350 rhinos. So when um, the, when the um, as I say, when the Zambezi was dammed on the 2nd of December 1958, the floodwaters rose quite quickly, as I said, in the first year, 60 meters on the on the dam wall. So islands were That's created. 60 meters, we're on talking about over 180 wall. feet. That's mm. very high. Yeah, right. the yeah. dam wall being 128 meters high. So islands were created and disappeared within that first year. Um, what happened was the game department in on both sides, well, well, it was the Game Preservation Society in northern Rhodesia, they undertook to build a um, boat the following year called the Erika. On the, on the Zimbabwean side, the Rhodesian side, they had a boat called the Ark. And um, they set about uh, with very small teams initially rescuing these animals. At first, it had a mixed, um, mixed public opinion because they said, well, you've been killing all these animals before. But um, in the... Um, in the months that followed, it managed just to capture the world's imagination. Um, and, you know, they requested things like um, women's stockings so that the animals' um, feet didn't get cut. And they ended up with these massive donations in Johannesburg and and, uh, and the UK, all these nylon stockings um, to save the animals. How did they use the nylon stockings? Oh, to um, secure the animal. Because, you know, like if you oh, capture it, tie, tie them up rather than with ropes because the ropes would cut their... Right. cut their, their legs. I'm glad somebody thought that. But uh, the things they rescued I mean, mm. from from rhinos uh, oh. right down to snakes. And here's, uh, I saw the picture of one of these game rangers that we see in a film where he's climbing out there and bringing back snakes mm. and baboons and monkeys and whatever mm. you think. And wrestling mm. these animals mm. to the ground. Mm. It's quite an epic story. Uh, that's going to be one of the biggest yeah. animal rescues ever. Absolutely, yeah. And... Um, if you if you it, it, uh, there's the um, the operation as such starts in the beginning of 1959, and of course the lake fills up up to you know like September sort of every year. On the northern Rhodesian side, the whole game operation was over by 1961. By the middle of 1961, it was it was directed by a guy called Tad Edelman, who was a highly decorated Polish. Uh, um, a fighter pilot during World War Two, and on the on the Rhodesian side, it was um, directed by a guy called um, uh, Rupert Fothergill. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Rupert's the one who appears he, a lot in the film. In on, the film, yeah. The yes, because it's quite hard. Do you actually save an elephant? Do you you know like if you guide him towards the shore, are you saving him or are you 
you know, because you're not actually they didn't actually physically put any elephants on the um, no, but, on the but, boats, but, but they directed them but, towards the shore and they scared them still, off the islands. Yeah, still so that so they do have those kind of statistics. But unreasonable to carry a <laughs> six ton or eight ton elephant. Mm-hmm. In in total, they saved forty four rhino. I mean, that's obviously something that people think about today, and. Um, if you know the lake at all, if you're at Boomy Hills, in front of Boomy Hills, there's a there's an island there called Starvation Island, and that's where the game had um, eaten most of uh, you know the available vegetation on the island, and that's where they actually end up rescuing thirteen rhinos in the in the final year of 1963. So that operation starts in '58 and goes right through to 1963, so and they say operation. 5,800 animals on the Rhodesian side and about 1,700 on the Zambian side, northern mm. Rhodesia. It was quite hard to work out exactly. But uh, what what a Herculean effort on behalf of a fairly small Absolutely. team, actually. Tiny team. Mm. Yeah. Um, and most of it was uh, was directed through um, donations from people. This is one of the myths that I deal with in the book, that you know the Tonga um, didn't uh, you know that they spent more money on rescuing animals than provisioning for the Tonga, which is totally untrue. Right. In fact, those people relocated. With they relocated. I mean, of the provision. as I said, seventy-eight million pounds. There's a seventy-eight million pound project, and of that, two point eight million pounds was spent on relocating Tonga, putting new schools and new roads, etc., mm. etc. And a further three million pounds was spent from the budgets of northern and southern Rhodesia. Um, creating fishing pitches for the Tonga in the future. Mm-hmm. Fishing pitches effectively bush clearing because, you know, you couldn't go out there and put your nets in unless, you know, on the, all the trees. So you saw those pictures of those giant graders going through the bush, dragging those big steel balls and um, and uh, warship um, mm-hmm. chains to knock down all the trees. Yeah. So that they could fish. So in that they could fish in the, in the areas in the you know mm. in the in you can't clear trees once the dam's filled up. You know, uh, so. No, mm. we understand that. So th- this really was something building for the future, and and considering that just a few decades before uh, this territory was about as wild and deserted and off the planet's uh, radar as you could get, that they created this this a powerhouse of hydroelectric energy that made possible the future development and industry mm. of uh, both uh, southern Rhodesia and northern mm. Rhodesia, what today is Zambia. Mm. Uh, it, it's extraordinary that they were thinking that far ahead mm. and that they were doing the work and they were paying the bills mm. that would save the next generations mm. a fortune. Well, cheap power allows you to do lots of things, you know, um, and they were they had been looking at the sort of Canadian model. The cheaper your power, the more your country develops. And the mines were hungry for power in northern Rhodesia. And in fact, uh, the the while the Queen Mother on the 17th of May 1960 opens the scheme officially, she was actually turning on the second generator. The first one had been turned on at the end of 1959 and the first power was sent to the copper belt for the mines. And then in the years that followed, the additional generators were brought on stream. There were six on the southern Rhodesian side at first. And um, the final one came on stream in March 62. Now that power in in southern Rhodesia allowed them to industrialize. And you had the fertilizer factories going in, the chrome, the ferrochrome in the Midlands area. As well as it gave the farmers um, cheap power, which allowed them to irrigate. Another um, beneficial boon 
which fed some, not just fed everyone in Zimbabwe, but the exports of, mm. of food. Because uh, the Rhodesian agriculture was some of the finest in the world. Mm. And, and they were exporting food phenomenally, providing how much employment, foreign currency. Exactly. So the, the knock-on effect was huge, wasn't it? Mm. And you see that now, you know, I've just come um, via Zambia. And, you know, a lot of the displaced farmers that moved out of Zimbabwe are up there. Now, 20 years ago, Zambia used to be quite an expensive place. Um, but, you know, your, 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 your basics, like your, you now get fresh milk. They produce as much milk as, as Zimbabwe did at its peak in 1991. Zimbabwe was 250 million litres of milk in 91, And today it's like about 68 million. So they're producing about a quarter of what they did. Zambia, of course, has gone the opposite way. Um, and it's a tale of two countries. Mm. I remember standing on the uh, Rhodesian side of the, uh, of Victoria Falls, looking over at Zambia, and uh, you know at that stage Zambia was socialist, one-party state, mm. dictatorship, and you could get virtually nothing mm. in the in the shops. And uh, a few years later, I'm standing on the Zambian bank, mm. looking south towards Zimbabwe, mm. and. Uh, uh, the situation is reversed. Mm. Zambia is now mm. multi-party democracy, lots of mm. uh, phenomenal things. The mm. shops are full and healthy tourism. Mm. And uh, Zimbabwe is looking pretty sad. Mm. So it shows that, mm. in fact, economics is basic to everything in society. Absolutely. And if you see the penultimate chapter, and you haven't had a good look at the book yet, but I no. call it Reversal of Fortunes, you know, for the, for the um, decades from 1990 yes. to 2010, which is exactly how you describe mm. it. Well, one thing that's also interesting is that even during the war, the Bush War for Rhodesia, uh, even though the hydroelectric plant was based on the southern bank, on, on mm. the Rhodesian bank, what today is Zimbabwe, it continued to provide electricity uninterrupted for mm. Zambia, didn't it? Mm. I mean, it was a years. very odd relationship, but also um, in, in, uh, in July 1970, because of the whole uh, issue of payments and sanctions that went into place after UDI, uh, the Rhodesians actually couldn't, well, Capco couldn't actually remit any of the money to pay for the scheme. And that led to a holdup on stage two being built, which started um, in July 1970. And that was budgeted at $43 million and ended yeah. up costing $147 million. Um, the company that started the initial construction, Mitchell Construction, went into receivership in January 1973. And it was only in May 1977 did the fourth, gener fourth and final generator come on stream uh, on, the, on the Zambian side. And that was stage one and stage two of the, of the initial scheme completed. And that's why, while um, officially Zambia and Radish were... Mm. at war with one another, really, yeah. uh, in all practical terms. And yet the Kariba Dam continued because mm. it was providing for the citizens on both, so, both sides, sides of yeah. the Zambezi River. Well, you know, the Capco employees, and I, and I cover this little story mm. in the book, you know, if they had to deal with anything on the other side, they would have to go from Kariba to Salisbury, Salisbury to Blantyre, Blantyre to... Um, to Lusaka to eventually come back down on the other side of the dam. Which was wall. just uh, about a. In, Which in was fact, like a 3,200 yes. kilometer journey. For the, what? That, that would, and he mm. said, I could see what was happening from my window, you know. On the, and the original survey said that that gorge was basically a good uh, cricket, so, um, well, cricket throw. throw. You yeah, could throw cricket, a cricket, cricket ball, ball across yeah. that gorge. That was Salou's, uh, um, I think it, nice, no, it wasn't, uh, wasn't nice, Salou's, nice it was Kegwin's uh, observation. Yeah, as I also point out to people, you know, Kariba is a single-purpose dam. It's built just for electrical energy, but 
what you have in the years that follow, and I cover this in the book too, is the um, spurring on initially of the fisheries industries, as you know about the capenta fish, which is the Tanzanian sardine, a huge source of protein. And then, of course, tourism. The border closing in 1975 with Mozambique kind of um, speeds things up on the on the Instead of going down side, to Bara, Bara people are going yeah. up to Kariba, yes. But... Um, you know, like as I say, it it it's it's burned it, it's burned on all these other um, uh, industries, which I give uh, quite a lot of coverage to in the in the book. Well, in South Africa, we've had a lot of power failures and blackouts, which they for some reason call load shedding over here. I suppose that's to distract from government failure. Mm. But uh, hydroelectric power is obviously a an excellent source of energy and as you point out it's one of the cheapest mm. forms of energy available to us vastly better than fossil fuels which doesn't clog up the railways mm. transporting mm. all the coal and all that as well so it's a win-win every way mm. looking at kariba at the time uh, what's a lesson for us now uh, considering the energy requirements of the whole continent of mm. africa should people be going back and looking at Kariba and saying, how can we utilize the hydroelectric potential mm. of our rivers? Well, you know, and this is something that I think everybody in, in school grew up with throughout Southern Africa is the power, as you talked about it right at the start, is the potential of the Inga, Inga Dam. You know, the Inga Dam is supposed to create something like 19,000 megawatts in the Congo. But, and that would be ideal. That would supply the whole region with green energy for years and years to come. But if the right people aren't being aren't going to give it the go ahead in Congo, and you can't get the sign off, you know these these big um, dam projects contain. There's obviously big contracts at work here, and now you've probably heard about the Potoko Dam, which is upstream of um, Kariba um, towards Victoria Falls. That would be a 196 meter high wall if they built it. When they started talking about it in the early 80s. It was going to cost $1.3 billion. And now it's going to cost $4 billion. Okay. Um, quite how much it should cost can be anybody's mm. guess. But they generally say that the era of big dam building globally has is, is, is come to an end. They've done all the surveys at Potoko. Probably the only downside mm. is a couple of um, waterfalls will be covered along with the Taita Falcon. It's a unique area um, for for the bird but um the bird of prey but they in terms of power generation it's going to be massive you know it's going to be more mm. than it'll it'll create more power than kariba because mm. because hydro is all about your drop okay and the drop at Batoko is going to be significantly more than kariba um because kariba is going is 128 meters high and Batoko would be a, a wall that would be 196 meters high can they get more power out of the generators? Well, there's been uprightings in the late 90s on both the um, Zimbabwean and Zambian sides, um, which produced more capacity from the the generators. They they moved up to um, 750 megawatts on the Zim side. Yeah. And now, uh, tell us more about your book, uh, how people can obtain it. Uh, we've got just two minutes left. Uh, how can people get hold of the book and... Uh more detail. Sure. Well, the um, the um, throughout South Africa, it's available um, um, via the publisher, a guy called Les Martins. Um, I'm not going to provide his phone number here, but uh, you'll see if you um, go to the Facebook site, uh, Kariba Legacy of a Vision, his contact detail, details are there. 
Um, and Hannes Vessels has written something about the, the book. Yes, too, Hannes so. Vessels got a book review. Uh, so Les Martins, it's telephone 082-556-8780. So it's 82 556-8780, or you can email les at sa-media-services, sa-media-services.co.za. So it's les, L-E-S, at sa-media-services.co.za, or phone them 082-556-8780. So that's Kariba, A Legacy of a Vision. It is 800 pictures, and how many pages? 320 pages. 320 pages, hardcover, beautiful, so much in color, a brilliant coffee table book, but what a lot of great insights and inspiring stories. Liz, any other words? We've got just 30 seconds. No, nothing uh, further to add. Just as I say, we're living with a great decision made um, during the 1950s. Uh, we're beneficiaries of what other people invested mm. in and paid for. And uh, if only we had more foresight and mm. self-sacrifice. Nice. Um, but unfortunately, we've got a generation today, especially of politicians, that don't seem to think of the future as much as their present. But uh, thank you so very much, Jonathan. May your book be blessed. May it inspire people. I think this is a wonderful, perfect Christmas gift for many a person. Thank you so much for joining us. God bless and good night. Thank you.